Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. at last perceived land but covered all with snow from which came walking upon the ice strange creatures in shape like bears only they went upright as men she is an author a woman for the present century and i think particularly for a time when there is so much reflection and introspection on the relationship between identity and the idea of multiple worlds She's set up this fantastical cosmic situation of two planets touching at poles. But within the covers of this book, she's got the same thing going on. She sees these two planets which are joined in the bookbinding, almost. The microscope and the telescope are both first developed in the very early 17th century. So by Cavendish's period, these are still extremely new and unusual tools of investigation. A merchant travelling into a foreign country fell extremely in love with a young lady. But being a stranger in that nation, and beneath her both in birth and wealth, he could have but little hopes of obtaining his desire. However, his love growing more and more vehement upon him, even to the slighting of all difficulties, he resolved at last to steal her away. Those are the opening lines of the description of a new world called the Blazing World by Margaret Cavendish, the Duchess of Newcastle, an extraordinary 17th century noblewoman who dabbled in natural philosophy, fashion design, and feminist science fiction. The whole story of this lady is a romance, wrote Samuel Pepys, and all she do is romantic. Cavendish wrote prolifically, but today she is best remembered for one remarkable work of prose fiction. Published in 1666, the same year as the Great Fire of London, The Blazing World tells the story of a young woman who is abducted, transported to another world beyond the North Pole, and proclaimed empress of an entire planet. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and in this episode I'm not going to attempt to journey beyond the North Pole and off to another dimension. Instead, I'm going to explore the fantastical and romantical streets of the city of Cambridge in pursuit of Margaret Cavendish. Now our first stop today is at the Polar Museum in Cambridge, which is a rather beautiful standalone building surrounded by sculptures of huskies and a bust of Scott of the Antarctic and we're going to head inside to meet our guest for today's episode. So I've just come into the Polar Museum and I'm delighted to introduce our guest for today's episode, Dr. Michael Bravo. Michael, welcome. Oh, thank you very much. (laughs) Michael is an associate professor at the Scott Polar Research Institute at the University of Cambridge. He's head of circumpolar history and public policy research at the Institute. And he's the author of the marvellous North Pole, Nature and Culture, which came out in 2019. Michael, we're standing in this extraordinary museum. Can you describe it to the listeners? What kind of museum is it? Thank you. It's a 20th century museum. It's a tribute, I suppose, to the history of polar exploration in its Uh origin. 
However, it's, it's a museum that is also very much about the polar regions in their fully inhabited form. Mm. We also have collections of scientific instruments uh-huh. and all the stuff of expeditions, instruments, narratives, uh, and all kinds of magical artifacts. Well, what a perfect place to start our conversation today about The Blazing World by Margaret Cavendish. This extremely strange book, uh, which of course features in your book about the North Pole. Let's talk about the, the start of that book, because there's so many different facets to it. In the preface to The Blazing World, she says that the first part of this narrative is romantical, the second philosophical, the third is merely fancy, or as I may call it, fantastical. So we're going to go through these various elements of the book today. But at the very beginning of the book, this, this young woman is abducted by this uh, amorous merchant. Um, but quickly, the merchant's boat gets caught in a storm, right? Uh, she writes, The vessel, both by its own lightness and the violent motion of the wind, was carried as swift as an arrow out of a bow towards the North Pole, and in a short time reached the icy sea. Um, and so what happens then, Michael? What, um, what happens to this boat? Well, I think the key is what happens also to the people. Right. Uh, these, uh, these kidnappers get their comeuppance, uh-huh. and by lacking virtue, they freeze to death properly and quickly. But Margaret Cavendish, of course, who has uh, virtue and ardor, creates a kind of warmth through that, and she survives. Yes, so, th- so this isn't Margaret Cavendish herself yet. It's a young, unnamed lady. I it think, is really. her chief protagonist, that's yes, right. Yes, exactly. And yes, she says, by the light of her beauty, the heat of her youth, and the protection of the gods, she remained alive. So, she, so it's pretty gruesome. Everyone dies around her, but because it's so cold, they sort of freeze. Um, they don't putrefy, right? She's just sitting there amidst all these frozen corpses. It's pretty horrific. And then what happens? Well, then the important work can begin. Uh, so they arrive at the North Pole, uh-huh. of course, and at the North Pole they discover that the North Pole is connected to another North Pole. That is to say that the world uh, that they inhabit or we inhabit is connected to another world, and these two worlds are joined at the North Pole. Such a strange idea. And I suppose it's worth remembering that you know Cavendish writing this in the 1660s, it's quite recent history that the new world of the Americas is being discovered. You know, the first British settlement in North America was in 1607. The Pilgrim Fathers landed on Plymouth Rock in 1620. So this is is quite recent history of people voyaging across the sea and discovering new worlds. So you can see where the idea of discovering a new territory might have come from. But this idea of two planets joined at the pole, Michael, where where does that come from, do you think? It's, It's... That is strange, and I I think it remains one of the most perplexing questions. Also, though, it reminds us that one of the reasons that she's so important is that's really a philosophical question Mm. at heart. What does it mean for a world that we take to, I don't know, to be known, uh, whose boundaries we think we know, and to discover that it is connected in some mysterious way to other worlds? So it, it is fundamentally a question about the possibility of different worlds and therefore also of different ways of being. You know, as in the best science fiction, it's really philosophical fiction, isn't it? It makes you ask questions about yourself. But tell me, Michael, what, in the mid-17th century, what was known about the North Pole? You know, part of the appeal must have been how little was known about it, I imagine. Yes. First of all, in the late 1500s, there had been quite a lot of traffic up in the polar sea, the Arctic Ocean. And the reason for that was that there was a thriving European whaling industry. And it's hard to believe, but if one goes up to the islands of Svalbard at 80 degrees north today, one still sees the the mounds and the bones of whaling, where in the summer up to five or 10,000 European men were whaling. So from the point of view of early modern readers and audiences, the North Pole was effectively an inhabited region, if not the precise point. So in that sense, it was a known quantity. Mm -hmm. But from the point of view of a writer, from the point of view of a philosopher, it was known in a completely different way. So both, as you said, it was invisible in the the sense it was no one had been there. No one could say uh, that there was speculation, actually, whether a whaler had been to the North Pole, perhaps hadn't known it. But no one could authoritatively say, here's the North Pole and here's what it looks like. However, this is also to shift 
into a philosophical mode and to think about why the North Pole mattered at all. And that's the beginning. That takes you back, as you said, to the discovery of new worlds. And in a way to the moment around 1500, when cosmographers begin to think about the Earth as a, as a whole. And you can't have a whole without the poles. <laughs> and the poles, of course, uh, connect to the celestial pole uh-huh. above the North Pole. So there is, in fact, what I would call the, the infrastructure of the Earth actually takes the North Pole as being central to the very existence of the Earth. But ironically, as you've, you've said, from the point of view of voyaging and exploration in Europe, it's about as peripheral as, as one can imagine. Well, on that note, let's just, why don't we move just slightly through the museum to have a look at the North Pole, look at the subject of our conversation. Through here in the, in the kind of entrance hall of the museum, there are two really extraordinary painted maps on the inside of two domes in the ceiling. Michael, what are we looking at here? They're really spectacular. Yeah, these are the two painted domes of the Polar Museum. I think they're a kind of like the pride and joy of the museum. They're beautiful to stand beneath as we are. They were painted by the artist Max or Maximilian Gill, an English artist who in the 1930s, when this building was, was made, was invited to paint these uh, wow. copulas. And they are each dedicated to a pole. So above you, you see the Arctic Ocean and the North Pole in the center. And over behind you, you yes. see Antarctica and the Antarctic Pole. They're beautifully colored and detailed, and I can see various historic voyages illustrated with ships and, and the names of the expeditions. Yes. And I can see some little polar bears there up on the, up on the ice and, a, and an airship. And gosh, there's so much detail to look at. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? That, I mean, one can picture Max Gill here not so very long ago hand-painting yeah. these ceilings. And what we see in this Arctic map is extraordinary. Both it's kind of uh, like a pantheon. Mm. One, one sees a procession of ships around the perimeter, each with a designated name of a historic explorer. Of course, all of them men, <laughs> uh, which is what we're also here to talk about. Where's Margaret Cavendish in this? Right. And for what it's worth, this ice-filled sea and the explorers are also, by the way, very international. So we have for the Joa mm. uh, from Amundsen, Norwegian, we've got American explorers, you've got the Roosevelt, you've got British explorers. So it reminds us of the, of the world of multiple empires that also oh. sets, sets the scene in a way for Cavendish's writing as well. Can you tell us a little about your experiences of visiting the polar regions? You know, looking up at this map, I can only imagine what it's like to be in those icy places. You know, if we were actually the protagonist of the blazing world venturing into the uh, Arctic, what does it feel like to be in that place? Well, my first visit to the Arctic uh, as a young uh, researcher was to a place in northern Canada that's been inhabited by the Inuit for millennia. The opportunities that I had was to work with Inuit filmmakers and video makers at the wow. time. So in a way, it was what they were seeing and the stories that they were telling about their society going back many generations. How extraordinary. It's a real privilege to be standing underneath these paintings. Also, what's rather brilliant is that in the very center of the map up here, marking the actual pole, there's a gilded, golden, blazing star, which couldn't be more appropriate for the book that we're talking about today. So um, I'll tell you what, why don't we move out of this slightly echoey space and talk a little bit more about what happens when the young woman passes beyond the North Pole onto this other planet. Cavendish writes, Finding her boat swim between two planes of ice as a stream that runs betwixt two shores, she at last perceived land, but covered all with snow, from which came walking upon the ice strange creatures in shape like bears, only they went upright like men. And these are the first of a, uh, a number of strange peoples that she meets on this new planet, all of whom seem to have the characteristics of different animals. You know, bear men, worm men, fish men, bird men, fly men, ant men, geese men, spider men, 
lice men, which sound a bit terrifying, as well as some satyrs, some giants, and many more, which I cannot all remember. <laughs> so many. So she, she arrives in this planet, and, and um, Michael, I think it's fair to say that Margaret Cavendish is describing a utopia in the blazing world. There's an emperor of uh, the planet, and he lives in a city called Paradise. So that's a pretty sort of straightforward clue as to what Cavendish is doing here. But more than that, this whole planet is united with a single language. Uh, there's universal peace. They don't have any guns because they have no enemies to fight. And that this city of paradise is uh, described in classical terms. It's like a sort of golden age of civilization. But, Michael, why would it be, do you think, that Cavendish would set this utopia beyond the North Pole? Why, why is that a location that she might choose? Margaret Cavendish chooses the North Pole, I think because the North Pole, ultimately at its heart, is a place of transformation. Mm. It's the connection to another world. And that goes back to its unique role as being, in Ptolemy's world, the polar axis of the entire universe. Uh So there's something so fundamental about the North Pole, without which the universe in its Aristotelian or Ptolemaic context could not have existed that becomes kind of the linchpin, the pivot for turning into another world that she so aptly describes as being peopled in this utopian way. (laughs) How interesting, because of course in the previous century, Thomas More's Utopia, that's set on a distant island. More's Utopia was published in 1551. A hundred years later, much more of the globe has been mapped and actually there's sort of fewer locations. And I love that idea that there's a sort of cosmic significance to the North Pole, which nowhere else on the Earth maybe has. I'm sure that's true. And that significance, going back to the cosmographers of the early 1500s, is precisely that the polar axis links the world. The, remember, this is the, the fallen world after the Garden of Eden mm-hmm. with the heavens, which traditionally were divine, were perfect. So the celestial pole that you saw in the top of the museum at the center of the painting is in some sense divinity and perfection. But by placing that on a map, in a sense one's linking, one's joining the perfection of the celestial pole with the fallen earth. Brilliant. Gosh, Michael, that's such a fascinating way to see it. Well, she meets the emperor and he's... um, immediately assumes she must be some goddess because she's so beautiful um, and she's sort of arrived from the North Pole. And uh, Cavendish writes, um, he offered to worship her, which she refused, telling him, for by that time she had pretty well learned their language, quite impressive, that although she came out of another world, yet was she but a mortal, at which the emperor rejoicing made her his wife and gave her absolute power to rule and govern all that world as she pleased. So on the one hand, that's rather a radical step of this young woman arrives in a new planet, immediately becomes the absolute ruler of the planet. I mean, that's rather extraordinary. On the other hand, she is describing an absolute monarchy. This is an aristocratic framework where um, uh, we now have an empress of the blazing world. I mean, it sounds so magnificent and fantastical that every time I read this, I have to, I have to summon some extra energy to try and picture it. It's so extraordinary. But I don't think either should we lose sight that this is also very much following in a, in a tradition of empire, empire mm-hmm. through and through. So as you allude to, her capacity to master the language of the people that she meets at a stroke is very much rooted in those traditions of taking possession of the new world. That's exactly what the Spanish and Portuguese do when they visit the new world. Well, Michael, thank you so much for welcoming us to the Polar Museum today. Next in the narrative of the book, and once the Empress is kind of installed in the blazing world, her next project is to gather all the learned people of the planet to quiz them about the state of science in the blazing world. And so I think that's a good moment for us to move on from the Polar Museum to our next stop today. Her accoutrement after she was made Empress was as followeth. On her head, she wore a cap of pearl and a half-moon of diamonds just before it. On the top of her crown came spreading over a broad carbuncle, cut in the form of the sun. Her coat was of pearl, mixed with blue diamonds and fringed with red ones, 
Her buskins and sandals were of green diamonds. Then we can go uh, straight up here. So we've just crossed the road from the institute. We've Michael is, is letting us through a rather wonderful wrought iron gate into the grounds of Downing College. Now we're walking down a little uh, sort of secret pathway into the into the grounds of Downing. Michael, I wonder if this is a good moment to, to talk a little bit more about Cavendish's biography, mm-hmm. you know, who she was. At the start of the English Civil War, she was 20, and she became one of the maids of honour serving Queen Henrietta in Oxford and then Paris. So this was her kind of entree to um, the higher echelons of the aristocratic world. And it was while she was in Paris that she met her future husband, William Cavendish, the Marquis of Newcastle. Now, he was... He was 30 years older than her. <laughs> she was in her early 20s. He was 30 years older. He'd been married before. He was, in, in some ways, slightly in disgrace in Paris because he'd um, led the king's forces to total disaster at the Battle of Marston Moor. <laughs> and so he tactfully had sort of moved to Paris. And they were married in 1645. Mm-hmm. Now, when Charles I was executed in 1649, the banished... Newcastles had to stay out of out of the country. They lived in the Netherlands for a while. And at some point during that time, in the early 1650s, Margaret returned to England and, and petitioned for her husband's estate to be returned, which was unsuccessful. But it was during those couple of years when she was on her own in England that she started to write and, and publish under her own name. And then at the Restoration, when... Charles II became the king. The couple were able to return to England and and most of the Duke's estates had gone, but they settled in the largest of his remaining houses, which was Welbeck Abbey in Nottinghamshire, which is still standing today. Michael, in in your book, North Pole, you say that some feminists have claimed Cavendish as a a proto-feminist. In what ways was she a feminist, would you say? Margaret Cavendish did extraordinary things by the standards of her day. First of all, I mean, she acquired this voice, right? A powerful Mm. voice as a woman by becoming an author. So authorship is pretty key to that. And she she always published under her own name, which was very unusual for her. It was, and that, of course, gave her and and her gender very clear visibility Mm -hmm. in a world uh, dominated by men. Certainly the, the world of science was a world of gentlemen. So her presence is a a remarkable, I think, precedent, a reference point for us to think with. She was a a powerful intellect in the world of science and philosophy. She had complex ideas that reflected, I mean, a very undoubtedly complex inner life. There's so much discussion Mm. about what kind of a person she was and which category she subscribed to, but more often which category she defied. Right. So I think both by the presence and the, her insistence, in a way, on the right to intrude in so many social norms means that uh, she broke so many of the rules of her day. I completely agree. There's a moment in her preface to The Blazing World called To the Reader when she says, I am as ambitious as ever any of my sex was, is or can be. And, you know, that really sets out her stool, doesn't it? She, she wants everything that she can achieve. And, you know, in prefaces to other works, she, she really defends her right to publish under her own name and to participate in these debates, as you say. Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, I think that's powerful stuff. She is strikingly original. In our conversation today, you know, we are challenged to place her. She mm. resists easy categorization. That's partly because her ideas are so complex. Uh-huh. Well, and the word she uses is singularity, isn't it? She, she's proud to be a singular person. She says in, in a, one of her autobiographical works, True Relation, which she wrote a bit earlier in 1656, she said, I always took delight in singularity, even in accoutrements of habits. And that's a reference to the fact that her clothes were pretty extraordinary, weren't they? She was, became famous for this, that she would design her own clothes and they incorporated both masculine and feminine fashion. 
and she kind of styled herself as um, a sort of half-man, half-woman, half-poet, half-scientist. This ambiguity that we've been talking about was really part of her self-styled identity. And the other word, as well as singularity, the other word she loved to use to describe herself was hermaphrodite, in the sort of wider sense of that term, as in incorporating all elements in one person. Yeah, I think the words singular and singularity are really interesting here. I mean, singularity, by the way, is a very interesting technical term in mathematics. And it points Mm. to something that both is a whole, has a boundary which creates within it a whole, and yet is in some way unique and beyond that. (laughs) A certain kind of island. And one might think of uh, Margaret Cavendish as an island. Both, of course, the product of the world in which she lives, but somehow standing out beyond it. So I think singularity is really an excellent term for, for In the way that um, the North Pole is a singular location as well. It is, and in some ways it's more helpful than thinking about her as a hybrid. Sometimes she's referred to as some of this and some of that. I'm, I'm not so sure that that's doing her justice, because I don't think the mixing, if you want to call it that, mm. in any way dilutes her. I think what it does is it adds complexity to trying to understand or trying to decode what it is that moves and motivates her. And there is not really a mixture of forces or causes. It's a combination that motivates above and beyond like a singularity. I love that. And yes, you know, even while she was alive, she became famous for this, this kind of eccentric persona that she sculpted for herself. Samuel Pepys, a famous 17th century diarist, he wrote um, in 1667, there is as much expectation of her coming to court so that people may see her as if it were the Queen of Sheba. And, and some people were less kind, of course. Uh, one contemporary of hers, Dorothy Osborne, said that there are many soberer people in Bedlam. I'll swear her friends are much to blame to let her go abroad. So it seems like she, she didn't care what people thought of her. She, just, she was carving her own path. And, and part of this involved producing these huge, prolific quantities of of writing. Well, it's a good question, isn't it, about how she perceived or what she might have thought of her critics. Mm. She certainly seems to have been a steely person. Mm -hmm. Uh, It could be that the suffering that she may have uh, felt and experienced was hidden from public view, at least in her most public persona. So perhaps she even fed off them. I mean, there's an element of Margaret Cavendish that's highly performative, isn't it? Very theatrical, yes, with these costumes and great arrivals at court. And in a way, I want to say, I think that's also consistent with her philosophy. Mm. There's a memorable moment in Virginia Woolf's book, A Room of One's Own, where she describes Margaret Cavendish and says, What a vision of loneliness and riot the thought of Margaret Cavendish brings to mind as if some giant cucumber had spread itself over all the roses and carnations in the garden and choked them to death. <laughs> not a very fair, not a very kind uh, description of uh, this prolific, extraordinary character. No, and it shows the two ways, at least, in which one can interpret the idea of an island or a singularity. One could either see her as being so unique uh, and eccentric as to be isolated, and, and, and therefore easy to mock, as many people uh, sought to detract from her. Or one can go along with her and try and follow her to see that what is motivating her inside, uh, her principles, her philosophy of being self-actuating, mm-hmm. uh, self-activating, if you like, is at the core of what makes her singular. We're approaching the Whipple Museum of the History of Science. And as we were saying, a large chunk of the blazing world is devoted to a discussion of the state of science in the mid-17th century. So let's, let's head into the Whipple Museum to talk about Margaret Cavendish as a scientist. I endeavour, said she, to be as singular as I can, for it argues but a mean nature to imitate others. And though I do not love to be imitated if I can possibly avoid it. Yet rather than imitate others, I should choose to be imitated by others, for my nature is such that I had rather appear worse in singularity than better in the mode. 
Wow, so okay, so we've just stepped into the Whipple Museum of the History of Science and a spectacular gallery full of the most exciting looking instruments and display cases. And we've been allowed in by Dr. Joshua Knoll, Curator of Modern Sciences at the Whipple Museum. Joshua, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, welcome, welcome to the Whipple Museum. <laughs> thank you very much. Josh, can you just describe for listeners what, what the, the gallery that we're in at the moment, it's really spectacular. Yeah, it's, it's somewhat unusual because when you walk in off of Free School Lane, we actually have a kind of bog-standard Victorian frontage. Right. But this is actually a 17th century church hall that we're standing in. So this is an original Jacobean hammer beam roof. So this hall was built between about 1618 and 1628. So it's a really uh, extraordinary survival that has been kind of built around by the university, but we're very fortunate that we can have our main gallery in here. Yeah, and it's a beautiful roof with these really decorative hammer beam uh, structures holding the roof up and um, lots of little scrolls and details and the ceiling is just spectacular and, and how brilliant that we're talking about a mid-17th century text and we're standing in a, <laughs> in a 17th century room that just couldn't be better. Now one of the really fascinating things about Margaret Cavendish is her interest in science and she was living at a great time for having an interest in science, right, because she was a contemporary of Thomas Hobbes and René Descartes. She met both Hobbes and Descartes in Paris. But one of the sort of central sections of the blazing world is the moment where the main character, the empress, quizzes her new subjects about the state of science. And each of the different bear men, ape men, fish men, and so on, each, each of these different type of people has a different scientific uh, expertise, she starts talking with the bear men, who are the astronomers of the blazing world, and they love to use their telescopes. Cavendish writes that these telescopes caused more differences and divisions amongst them than ever they had had before. For some said they perceived that the sun stood still and the earth did move about it. Others were of opinion that they both did move, and others said again that the earth stood still and the sun did move. Some counted more stars than others, some discovered new stars never seen before, some fell into a great dispute with others concerning the bigness of the stars. And, and in that paragraph, she's summarizing a, a kind of two centuries of debate from, from Copernicus, suggesting that maybe there's a heliocentric solar system. And that debate hadn't really finished yet. It wasn't really until Newton provided the physics that proved Kepler right that debate was sort of solved. So she's coming in right at the end of quite a hot topic, right? Yes, you're right. Uh, what she spells out amongst those different species is controversy and mm -hmm. disagreement, mm -hmm. not consensus. Josh, um, Margaret's writing in 1666. Do you have any telescopes in the collection that she might have been familiar with in the mid-17th century? So what we're looking at, we're standing in front of a really quite a beautiful refracting telescope made by the London maker John Yarwell. It dates to around about 1690. So it's I think probably pretty similar to the kind uh, of telescope um, that Cavendish would have had access to. Yes, it's a, so it's a straight telescope which looks like it's got lots of nested tubes which would literally telescope out to make a longer tube for you to look through. And beautifully turned wooden eyepiece and lens um, cap at the end. And yes, rather beautiful colouring all over it. It's a very decorative piece. You can see that it's rather beautifully uh, tooled. The, the tubes themselves were actually tended to be made by bookbinders. Oh. Uh, so they tend to be cased in things like vellum. Wow. And then Yarwell himself would have characterized himself as an optician, which is to say that the, the real skill of the telescope maker was making Grinding the lenses. The lenses. Okay. Yeah. How interesting. But, and, you know, it's so interesting for Cavendish who's both interested in book publishing and in science, that there's a bit of a crossover there. It feels like such an interesting time in the history of science, Josh, because the, the sort of disciplines that we talk about now were only just coming into formation, but you know, science was just being born. And, and it feels similar in literature, that there wasn't a particular distinction between fiction and non-fiction. And, and so Margaret Cavendish was at this sort of melting pot of all these different ideas just in formation. Yeah, and I think that um, this kind of discord that, that Michael has already mentioned, you can see some of that being born out of the advent of these new tools. I mean, the, the microscope and the telescope are both first developed in the very early 17th century. 
So by Cavendish's period, these are still extremely new and unusual tools of investigation. Very few people actually have access to them. Mm -hmm. And so what you see through them remains somewhat contested. So yeah, let's move on to talk about microscopes, because after the Empress has finished looking through the telescopes on the blazing world, Cavendish writes that they brought forth several microscopes by the means of which they could enlarge the shapes of little bodies and make a louse appear as big as an elephant and a mite as big as a whale. Now, Josh, I feel like Cavendish must have had in mind Robert Hooke's extraordinary publication, Micrographia, which was published in 1665, just a year before she was writing this. And I believe you have a copy of Micrographia here. We do. We've got a first edition from oh 1665. Goodness. Oh, wow. Maybe have a look. This is where we've got our earliest oh, microscope. Wow. Yes. Okay. So we're just now coming into another um, room at the museum. And, oh, yes, yeah, so look, in this cabinet here are some extraordinary uh, 17th century microscopes, really beautiful instruments of brass and polished turned wood. You know, they're real status symbols as well as functional scientific instruments. So what we're looking at here is some of the microscopes that Robert Stuart Whipple collected. And you can see rapidly changing forms. This example from about 1680 is quite small. It would actually kind of almost fit in a pocket. It's an upright and you would screw the barrel uh, up and down. And then you get to this type we call the, the, the Marshall type, which is quite similar to the example that Hook illustrates in Micrographia. It's starting to look a bit more like a microscope as we would understand it today. Now, Robert Hooke, of course, he, um, he was also an architect. He worked with Christopher Wren to rebuild the city of London after the Great Fire. But he was also a, a pioneering scientist and, and was a part of the Royal Society from its foundation. And really, his fame rests on this book that you're holding, Josh. Yeah, so this is obviously starting with the title Gosh, page. Beautiful frontispiece um, illustration, lovely mixture of red and black typesetting. Micrographia or some physiological descriptions of minute bodies made by magnifying glasses with observations and inquiries thereupon. Great title. And what most people do is they tend to flick through and, and skip the huge volume of text to find all of the beautiful plates because ah. um, there are lots of really quite stunning illustrations in here. And of course the most famous image perhaps is... It's the large fold-out of a flea. That's exactly what I'm going to try and find. And look there at that. Wow. Just, so like that. Two, Just like that. Josh has had to unfold the paper three times to get this enormous sheet of paper out of the book. And gosh, that is just extraordinary, isn't it? A, you know, it's, large, it's about A3-sized image of a flea. You can see the hairs on its legs and on its body and how the scales overlap. Gosh, yeah, Michael, what, what do you think when you see this image? It's extraordinary, isn't it? Well, I, I think of my, my years studying the history of science. It's so uh, important and canonical. I think we also continue somehow to be surprised by the image, almost no matter how familiar it is. And that speaks to Hooke's uh, desire to give this instrument an extraordinary authority. Mm. What he's doing with the flea isn't so very different than what Margaret Cavendish is doing with the North Pole. Something invisible to the world suddenly becomes visible. Uh -huh. The question is, of course, on what terms should this be believed? I love that. There's a, there's a bit in The Blazing World when, um, when Cavendish writes, they showed the empress a flea, which creatures through the microscope appeared so terrible to her sight that they had almost put her into a swoon. But after the empress had seen the shapes of these monstrous creatures, she desired to know whether their microscopes could hinder their biting or at least show some means how to avoid them. And I quite like that. But yes, it is extraordinary. We're seeing this flea blown up to such an extraordinary size. But the empress thinks, but what actual, what practical use is this? How can I avoid my fleas biting me in bed at night? <laughs> yes, this is as good as a fly zapper. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, the Royal Society of London had been founded in 1660, so just a few years before she was writing The Blazing World. It's, the old, it's still going. It's the oldest national scientific institution in the world. And Robert Hooke, whose book we've been looking at, was the curator of experiments at the Royal Society from 1662. Of course, one of the things about Margaret Cavendish is she was the first woman to attend a meeting of the Royal Society in 1667, so in fact a year after she'd published 
blazing world. And Samuel Pepys, who we've mentioned already, was a member of the Royal Society. In fact, he went on to, to become its president. But he recorded in his diary what he remembered of her visit. Um, and I wonder, Josh, might you be happy to read out the description? Anon comes the Duchess with her women attending her. The Duchess hath been a good, comely woman, but her dress so antic and her deportment so ordinary that I do not like her at all. Nor did I hear her say anything that was worth hearing, but that she was full of admiration, all admiration. Several fine experiments were shown her of colours, lodestones, microscopes, and of liquors, among others, of one that did, while she was there, turn a piece of roasted mutton into pure blood, which was very rare. Thank you. Be- beautifully read. But yes, what a weird experiment. Yeah. Showing, I'm not some... quite sure what's going on with that last line. But, but you definitely get a sense of, of, of a rather sort of, of snooty peeps um, sort of turning his nose up at this amateur uh, aristocratic scientist. Yeah, I think what we're seeing from uh, peeps here is really a very uh, strong slight. Mm. He is saying this is a person who, for all the social credentials she may have to be able to arrange a visit to the Royal Society, has no qualifications for observing and, or even understanding mm. what's going on. So I think a slight is where he describes her as being filled with admiration, yes. as though that were the horizon of her understanding, mm-hmm. beyond which the marvels of the natural world and the power of the scientific instrument is not something that she is in a position, because of her gender in particular, uh, perhaps also her philosophical ideas, to be able to connect with. And I rather like talking about those disagreements and the, uh, you know, the debate that was going on. I rather like that um, in the blazing world where the Empress, after she's heard all these different scientific uh, theories from all, the, all her new subjects on the blazing world, she finally is advised, since your majesty complained much of the factions of the bear, fish, fly, ape and worm men and the like, and of their perpetual disputes and quarrels, I would advise your majesty to dissolve all their societies for it is better to be without their intelligences and to have an unquiet and disorderly government. I feel like that's her sort of getting back at this establishment. Disband the Royal Society. It's, it's all there. Uh, you know, we can do it ourselves. Yeah, doesn't it show that Margaret Cavendish can give as good as she gets? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, that's remarkable, isn't it, yeah. to talk about the dissolution of the scientific societies. I think also, interestingly, it shows that, that there's the role of wit, and wit does not belong solely on the side of, say, peeps. Right? Mm-hmm. Wit is also the, the language here of satire. And in a way, it's kind of like, it's sort of a cousin to utopian writing, isn't it? Pushing things to extremes in order to make a, a philosophical point. Mm-hmm. Well, Josh, thank you so much for welcoming us to the Whipple Museum today. It's been such a privilege to be standing surrounded by these extraordinary scientific instruments. But now I think it's time for us to move on. We've, we've talked about Cavendish's work as a scientist, and now let's move on to talk about her as, as a writer, as a writer of a literary work. So, Josh, thank you so much for having us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. 
Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So we've left the, left the Whipple Museum now, and we're just walking through the streets of Cambridge to our next stop. But, Michael, I wonder if now's a good moment to talk about perhaps the strangest aspect of this book, The Blazing World. Because after she's talked to her subjects, the Empress starts thinking that she'd like to write something of her own. And she scouts around for someone who's going to help her write a book. And she gets told about a certain... Duchess of Newcastle. <laughs> she gets told about Margaret Cavendish. Suddenly, Margaret Cavendish enters her own narrative. But just isn't this quite remarkable? It's so postmodern, isn't it, for an author to suddenly enter their own narrative? And it's just another example of her breaking boundaries. Yes, exactly. She's breaking boundaries. And again, we see this great source of wit. The question, yes. is, in a sense, is who is the Duchess of Newcastle? <laughs> or, or to put it differently, which Duchess of Newcastle is it who becomes the Empress's scribe? So it both, of course, appeals uh, to the almost comic, or at least ironic, sense of these uh, multiple selves. When the spirit of the Duchess arrives, Cavendish writes, the Empress made her also her favourite and kept us some time in that world. And by this means, the Duchess came to know and give this relation of all that passed in that rich, populous and happy world. So that's how we're coming to get this text, is that the Duchess has seen it all um, through being invited to the world. And after some time, the Empress gave her leave to return to her husband and kindred into her native world, but on condition that her soul should visit her now and then, which she did. And truly, their meeting did produce such an intimate friendship between them that they became platonic lovers, although they were both females. Such a rich fantasy there. Okay, so we're just coming round to the front of the very dramatic University Library in Cambridge. It's designed by Giles Gilbert Scott, who of course designed the Battersea Power Station, and in some ways they're quite similar, aren't they? It's a very dramatic, bold, brown brick structure. Let's head on inside. So we're inside the University Library now in the Rare Books Department, and it's such a pleasure to introduce Dr Emily Dorish, the Deputy Keeper of Rare Books at the Cambridge University Library. Emily, thank you for joining us. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for, for letting us in here. Could, could, first of all, could you tell us a little bit about your work at the Rare Books Room? What does that involve? So, so my task sounds very medieval, the, being <laughs> the, the Deputy Keeper of Rare Books and <laughs> yes. early manuscripts. Um, essentially what that means is the, the department which deals with all our historic printed books... Uh-huh. Um, so anything before 1900, essentially, um, we look after all kinds of really fascinating materials. Well, talking of those extraordinary materials, we're standing right next to a first edition of The Blazing World uh, by Margaret Cavendish. So we've been walking around Cambridge today talking about this work, but here, is, here it is as it first appeared. So this copy is in yeah. a, a slightly later binding, so it doesn't, unfortunately, look exactly as it would have done at the time. Okay. But once you get past the first couple of pages, we've got this beautiful annotation here from mm. Benedicta Kitchen, mm. her book, Anno Domini, 1668. Gosh. So we've got a fantastic bit of evidence here of a, a very early female reader. Right, so when it was just so two years after it was published, she's got hold of this first edition, mm-hmm. Benedicta Kitchen. Benedicta Kitchen. Unfortunately, <laughs> we don't know anything more about <laughs> right. her, but it's, it's wonderful to have a woman owning a copy of this book. Yes, and it's a beautiful signature, author. and uh, yes. you know, she's really taken care to mark yes. that in, hasn't she? Yes, it's lovely. And then, oh, look, here and we then are. As we go. So here we are on the title page The Description of a New World Called the Blazing World, written by the thrice noble, illustrious, and excellent princess, the Duchess of Newcastle. And look, this is interesting, isn't it? Printed by A. Maxwell in the year 1666. Now, this was Anna Maxwell, the London printer, who I believe was the first uh, professional female printer in London. 
So interesting that this great work by a 17th century noblewoman, she chose a female mm -hmm. printer to, to publish it. Mm. Gosh, that's beautiful. And so the pages are still in beautiful condition. Yes. Um, one thing is a little bit of a shame. We've got a couple of annotations here, which oh, yeah. we know Margaret made to her own publications. She made a few amendments where she'd read the text huh. and then wanted to change the word. So just opening at this page, after the Empress had observed not the art of manage, that art of it. So presumably referring to something earlier in the text. So who, who would, so those corrections would have been made on her? She made order? those, copy, those annotations herself on quite a lot of copies. Oh, wow. Now, of course, we were saying earlier that when The Blazing World was first published, it was published as part of a larger volume. Now, this first edition you have, is, is, it's presented on its own, but next door to it, we've got a, the second edition, I can see. And this is presented in the full volume, which includes observations upon experimental philosophy. But I love that idea that, you know, she's set up this fantastical sort of cosmic situation of two planets touching at poles. But within the covers of this book, she's got the same thing going on. She sees these two planets which are joined in the book binding, almost. And as we know from the story, joined in a way, there's a door that opens from one world into the other. There's a transformation that happens through that door and into the other world. Well, it's such a privilege to see this first and second edition and see how contemporary readers would have experienced these texts. But Emily, there's some other books you've got out for us to look at here. What else are we looking at here? Uh, I've brought out a handful of books that we're incredibly privileged to have received from the author herself. Right. Um, we know that she gave copies of many of her works to libraries of the day. But I suspect what happened around this time is, is authors very often gave their books to universities as a way of saying, I'm producing something worthy of study. So this is Nature's Pictures Drawn by Fancy's Pencil to the Life. <laughs> drawn by um, Fancy's Pencil, that's great. And so from 1656. Gosh, so these are, that's extraordinary that she gave these to the university and they're still here. Yes. I love this in the inscription. She describes herself as Marchionissa Elegantissium, the most, the most yes. elegant. And another one which we know was given by Margaret is here, The Life of Her Husband, William Cavendish, ah. uh, 1667. Wow. Um, and this copy has got quite a few annotations and corrections. Uh, and one of those, which is quite substantial, is where she deleted a section that suggested her, her husband's troops stayed on duty even though the king hadn't paid them. Uh, and she seems to have changed that for some reason and later uh, changed something suggesting that two of the lords involved in the battle were guilty of invigilancy and carelessness. Oh, Maybe a sort of uh, 17th century libel. Mm. This is just all about him, his honours and dignities, his diet, of his, his outward shape and behaviour. Oh my goodness, what was his shape? His shape is neat and exactly proportioned, <laughs> his stature of middle size, and his complexion sanguine. Well, slightly biased account, I suspect. Gosh, it's amazing to see just the size of these volumes. I mean, how would you describe them? They're sort of A4 size about the thickness of a, of a large phone directory, I'd say. Yes, Beautifully so. bound with marble, then papers. And uh, produced at great expense. You know, this is, uh, this is so beautifully produced. And, mm. and a lot of that was funded, self-funded by my Margaret and her husband, the Duke of Newcastle. Yes, you know, so there's this, no this, expense spared. Yeah, so they're, they're what we would call uh, a folio size. So they're a, uh -huh. they're a large book and printed very generously with a lot of blank space around yes. the edge of the text area. Um, what that tells us is that these are quite luxurious productions because paper was a very expensive resource at the time that these books were being printed. And to leave this much space is a sign that, well, as we see on this page we've just come to, there's space to put a few notes in the mm -hmm. side. There's sort of a bit of, of academic discussion of the text. But it's very much a book that says, I'm, I'm a, a luxurious item. The copies that we have here are, are all in beautiful condition not that that means they haven't been well read, it just means that they've been well read and then repaired within the library over the years. Right. Um, so they do look not far off what they would have looked like probably 150, 200 years after being printed. Wow, yeah, beautiful, beautiful covers embossed with gold and yeah, really stunning. And then, gosh, this final one you've got out here has an amazing frontispiece illustration, a portrait of Margaret Cavendish herself as a kind of sort of Greek goddess in a sort yes. of um, alcove. Yes, so this is her sociable, her 211 sociable letters. Oh, my goodness. But they are and very Michael, what, just looking at this portrait at the front, I mean, who knows how, 
how accurate it is, but what do you take from that image? I see an image of a person that's very powerful. Frontispieces are famously very carefully constructed. And so what's Margaret Cavendish wanting us to see in this? She's wanting both to be seen to be uh, feminine and dutiful. As you said, there's a biography of her husband. And, and in a way, this is both giving her recognition and voice as a person of dignity, someone who is uh, an aristocrat, who's in a position to produce, to be an author and to produce these exceptional works, to bequeath them to libraries, whom she would uh, expect to feel privileged to receive them. I, d I do agree there's a, there's a kind of conservatism that this plays into, but also that there's quite a, there's a confident look in those eyes, isn't there? And she's got her hand on her hip. She's, it's a, quite a theatrical pose. It's a very confident portrait. And just looking at this yes. little verse underneath, here on this figure cast a glance, but so as it were by chance. And it goes, her beauty's found beyond the skill of the best painter to embrace. <laughs> There's certainly no sort of modesty in this image. There isn't. Uh, and I think you're right. She is uh, very confident. And, and there seems to be a statement that she can stand on her own two feet. I mean, she's not there at the invitation of anybody else. And that, just, you know, just looking at this range of work that Emily's set out for us today, it, it makes me think of almost the most interesting aspect of the blazing world for me, which is the way that Margaret has taken authorship as the way that she can take ownership of a whole planet. So she writes in her preface to the reader, though I cannot be Henry V or Charles II, who'd, who'd recently become king, yet I endeavor to be Margaret I. And although I have neither power, time, nor occasion to conquer the world as Alexander and Caesar did, yet rather than not be the mistress of one, since fortune and the fates would give me none, I've made a world of my own, for which nobody, I hope, will blame me, since it is in everyone's power to do the like. And I think that's such a sort of powerful description of what it means to be an author. You are creating a whole world through writing. And, you know, I find that such a kind of emancipatory idea that she's expressing there. Yes, and I, th I think the emancipation you refer to lies also very deeply rooted in her idea of matter, that matter is alive, it is self-activating, it has so a kind of engine that creates uh, the vitality of life. So that, that seems to be driving her, and I think maybe that's the condition of possibility of creating these other kinds of possible worlds. It's very, very powerful. I think it's also clearly a reiteration of the statement of power and empire. Right, yes, yes. Yes, talking about Caesar and Alexander, yes. It also feels like there's a generosity there as well, that she's saying, you know, everyone can do the same. You know, you can, in her epilogue to the reader, she says, um, if you should like the world I've made and you will be my willing subjects, then you um, can imagine yourselves as such. And in your fancies and imaginations, you can come and live in my world, essentially. And, you know, there's a sort of uh, warmth of spirit, I think. There is. I can't help but think, here we are in the Cambridge University Library, that perhaps it's beyond the realm of reasonable supposition, but I think something in what we're doing here would delight her, to think that we are actually also her willing subjects. <laughs> yes, yes, you're right, her entourage following her through the blazing world. And there might be a kind of connection there through how she understands and hopes uh, to think of her readers as well. Mm -hmm. yes. Well, Emily, thank you so much for getting out these extraordinary books. It's been a real privilege to see them, and, and we're really grateful to you for letting yeah, us... It's, it's a pleasure. It's wonderful to have them all out myself, because I'm, I'm not very familiar with her work, so to have a chance to look at them, is, uh, it's been fantastic for me as well. Thank, thank you. you. For every human creature can create an immaterial world fully inhabited by immaterial creatures and populace of immaterial subjects, such as we are and all this within the compass of the head or skull. Nay, not only so, but he may create a world of what fashion and government he will, and give the creatures thereof such motions, figures, forms, colours, perceptions, etc., as he pleases. Well, Michael, I feel like we're approaching the end of our conversation now. We've moved away from the university library and we're standing on the really beautiful bridge in Clare College over the 
River Cam. And we're here partly because the bridge is topped by a number of decorative spheres. But we could, if we kind of use the kind of imagination that Margaret Cavendish had, we could picture them as a series of worlds balancing on the parapet here. And in some ways that is almost the final miraculous thing about this text, that there's a moment which really took me aback when I was reading it, when the Empress asks about the number of worlds in the universe. And she says um, she inquired whether there were but three worlds in all, to wit the blazing world, where she was in, the world which she came from, and the world where the Duchess lived. You know, you sort of thought she had come from the Earth that we knew and gone into this strange world, but it turns out that was a completely different planet. She's gone into the blazing world, which is another new planet, and then on top of that there's the Earth that we're familiar with. So suddenly she expands the universe of this book to, to include a whole a sort of infinity of multiple worlds. And really, that's such an extraordinary moment. You know, yet again, breaking the boundaries of our expectations and expanding the horizons of what she's doing in, in this book. Yes, that's, that's right. I think these globes, remember, each have a pole. Right. And what she's also saying is that there are as many poles as there are worlds. So towards the end of the blazing world, there's a whole section where she travels back to her native planet and and wages war against the enemies of her country. And there's this kind of dramatic standoff and she ends up winning world peace. And and, but again, electing the sort of the king of her native country, the king of that planet. And then she goes back to the blazing world and and has a royal old time with the emperor. They ride in a chariot drawn by unicorns and they swim and have a you know, wonderful final description of their life together. You're right. And, you know, it's a world that we probably wouldn't want for ourselves. <laughs> right. But it is a world that's uh, won on her terms. Absolutely. And so, Michael, just to finish, how do you see the legacy of, of Margaret Cavendish today? And, and do you see it as, as changing today? Is she more than a, an eccentric literary footnote? She's far more than that, and she is a, an author, a woman for the present century, and I think particularly for a time when there is so much uh, reflection and introspection on the relationship between identity, through Margaret Cavendish's various selves, and the idea of multiple worlds. Fundamentally, uh, she shares with many people today a need, a recognition of a need for, for other ways of thinking, other perspectives on seeing the world. So it's pluralism, if you like, that unites her with us. And therefore, the questions that she was asking, in some way, perhaps reconfigured, can also be questions for our day as well. Wow. Well, Michael, what a wonderful way to finish our conversation today. Thank you so much for joining me on this walk around Cambridge and this this tour through the extraordinary worlds created by Margaret Cavendish. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Many thanks to Dr. Michael Bravo, the Polo Museum, Dr. Joshua Knoll and the Whipple Museum of the History of Science, Dr. Emily Dourish and the Rare Books Room team at the Cambridge University Library, to the Penguin Audio team for the clips of Abigail Thor's reading of The Blazing World, and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott, the producer is Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Towards the end of her life, Margaret Cavendish became something of a figure of fun. Crowds attended her carriage when she came to town, hoping for a glimpse of Mad Madge, the Duchess. She increasingly closeted herself at Welbeck, writing until she died quite suddenly in December 1673 at the age of 50. But I'll leave you with Virginia Woolf's conclusion. That though her philosophies are futile, and her plays intolerable, and her verses mainly dull, the vast bulk of the Duchess is leavened by a vein of authentic fire. One cannot help following the lure of her erratic and lovable personality as it meanders and twinkles through page after page.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.